This is the ACR 22 Daily Podcast Review featuring the Room Now faculty as they present to you their favorite abstracts and presentations from the meeting. Enjoy. Hi, this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh. I'm here at the Room Now booth at ACR 22 Convergence. And I'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to a meeting which I think is a very special meeting, and that's RWCS. It'll be held this year, February 15th to 18th, 2023. We have an incredible lineup of speakers and a full schedule of topics, and it's going to be great. So make your reservations, get there, and we'll be very pleased to see you in Maui in February. Be there. Aloha. Hi, David Liu here, reporting for Room Now from ACR 2022. All we were talking about last year was oral surveillance, and still the legacy keeps on going. I want to tell you something about something slightly related to oral surveillance and some of the data that's washed out from that. Because in oral surveillance, we did see a sub-study in that group of patients who did have some cardiovascular risk. We saw, some, we saw in TNF inhibitors versus JAK inhibitors some infection data. And we saw that JAK inhibitors did seem to carry an increased risk for a number of different types of infection. Now, what about East Asian patients? Because we know that they do have different infective risks and they do make up a decent proportion of our patients, but we don't always have the data to inform our decisions in that subpopulation. What we've seen at this meeting, and that's the beauty of ACR, you get data from all around the world, South Korean national insurance data looking at TNF inhibitors versus JAK inhibitors as far as zoster risk is concerned, general bacterial infection, and then opportunistic infections. And what we saw was that general bacterial infections were equal between TNF inhibitors and JAK inhibitors. We saw an outsized risk, as you might imagine, of zoster in this population with JAK inhibitors over TNF inhibitors. Even with this enriched population, we saw a 2.3 times greater risk of zoster infection in JAK inhibitor treated patients versus TNF inhibitor patients. Um, although we did see slightly more opportunistic infections with TNF inhibitor treated patients versus JAK inhibitor patients. The point I'll make though is that it's a lot more common to get zoster, serious zoster in fact, in this population compared to opportunistic infections. So plenty to consider as we go about trying to still uh, piece um, apart the real data from our surveillance in real decisions that we have to make clinic. For plenty more on rheumatoid arthritis, head on down to roomnow.com. I'm Anthony Chan, consultant rheumatologist from London, United Kingdom, reporting here for Room Now at ACR22. We've had a lot of uh, interesting presentations at ACR22, and one of the topics that I'm really interested in is how we can reduce delays to diagnosis. One of the issues we have in the field of axial spondyloarthritis is the long delay, where patients can spend years prior to a diagnosis. Here in the United Kingdom, the average time is eight and a half years. We have a project nationally called the Gold Standard Project to try to reduce that to one year. One of the interesting presentations at the ACR 22 uh, comes from Dr. Nelly Ziat, who is a very kindly been able to join us today. And she's going to, we want to talk to her about two of her, uh, her abstracts. First is uh, 1512, and then we'll be followed by 1517. So uh, Nelly, welcome to um, our session today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for the invitation. So I was very interested to read your, 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 your poster presentation and the abstract 1512 where you have worked with uh, quite a few centers in a few different countries 
in your area to look at how using different criteria you can try to find the best solution to reduce delays to diagnosis. I wonder whether you could take us through uh, your your findings in 1512. Yeah. So uh, diagnostic delay, as you said, Anthony, is, uh, is a new universal problem. But there's a lot of heterogeneity between the different countries and the different regions of the world. So in the Middle Eastern Arab countries, it's around uh, seven years, but it's really uh, variable between uh, the countries. So what we wanted to do is to see if the available referral strategies uh, that were uh, published worldwide can be uh, applied to our region. Why do we want to apply it to our region? Because uh, we have uh, reasons to believe that we have different uh, system. So first, the healthcare system is different. Uh, patients go uh, to different specialists. They have access to specialists, direct access to specialists. However, uh, many times they go to the wrong specialists. They go to the orthopedic surgeon or to the neurosurgeon, to the neurologist. And uh, this way might contribute to the delay uh, more. They also go to the pharmacist to get NSAIDs over the counter. And this uh, may also delay the diagnosis uh, further. So this is one reason. The second reason is that also HLA-B27, which is a very important parameter in the referral strategy, is uh, has a lower prevalence in our countries. And so its utility in the referral might be different. So this is why we decided to see if the published referral strategies are applicable to our country. So uh, we included the seven, uh, seven countries in, uh, in the study. And uh, uh, every center uh, talked to the referral system around him. So they, uh, the doctors that usually send to them the patients. So they asked them to send them low back pain who were suspicious of uh, inflammatory nature. So we didn't give them like specific uh, uh, criteria, but uh, we told them in real life, who would you send to the rheumatologist? And so uh, we wanted, this was done on purpose to see uh, what happens in real life. So the referring uh, physician sent the, the patients to the doctor and the doctor opinion, the rheumatologist opinion was the gold standard. And so we looked at all the parameters, this was prospective, we included 515 patients from seven Middle Eastern Arab countries. And these patients uh, were checked uh, clinically and we did also HLA-B27 and we did uh, MRI of the sacroiliac joints. And we, uh, we did the final diagnosis by the rheumatologist. And the test was to see which referral strategy works best. So uh, for the 515 patients, 48% uh, had axial spa, 43% were had no axial spa, so confirmed no axial spa, there was an alternative diagnosis, and in 9%, the diagnosis was still uncertain. So the optimal referral strategy was the master strategy. So we tested 10, 10 strategies for this. So the master strategy is uh, based on inflammatory back pain, on good response to NSAIDs, on positive HLA-B27, and on spa family history. Now we looked furthermore to see if we remove HLA-B27. So if we choose a strategy without HLA-B27, and uh, then the radar uh, strategy was the best. So the radar strategy is based on inflammatory back pain, good response to NSAID, and any extra musculoskeletal manifestation like psoriasis, IBD, or uh, uveitis. So we hope that uh, 
when we identify the correct referral strategy, now the second step is to implement it in our community and uh, hope, hopefully reduce the diagnostic delay. This is uh, excellent work. Uh, obviously, it's real-world um, data, which is obviously very helpful. And uh, going forward, knowing that your prevalence of B27 is quite low, would you think that you might be using either the master or radar or a combination uh, in your next step? Yes, so I think it will depend also on uh, the available resources. If we have access to HLA-B27, so we have like some countries who have a high uh, level economy and some with a very uh, low or, or middle income uh, economy. So I think that uh, the HLA-B27 has a low prevalence. However, the specificity is very high. So once it's, uh, it's positive, then you are like more than 95% sure that the patient has uh, access to so uh, maybe in, uh, when there is a possible uh, good resources, uh, good socioeconomic level, it's always good to have objective measures and it's easier also for the referring physicians. So the master would be a good option. However, in countries where you have a low economy income, low income, uh, so you can use without the HLA-B27, but you have to be more, um, so you can use a radar strategy, but you have to teach the referring physicians about the extra musculoskeletal manifestation. So you have to ask them to ask about psoriasis, IBD, and uh, uveitis. So one of the things that came up quite uh, strong was antisitis uh, in, your, in your table uh, in the XPA versus the non-XPA group. How good are we, do you think, uh, in training our colleagues in detecting antisitis as a, as a, you know, as a predictor of future expo? Yeah, so it's, uh, it could be anything. It could be like uh, people may label uh, fibromyalgia as, uh, as mm. antisitis. So I, I agree that this parameter is not very easy to implement in, uh, in referring, in referral strategy. And also, you had nine percent of people who are undefined in in your in your practice. Do you repeat their scans, or you know how would you manage those people who you clearly were kind of uh, in between, where they were still a bit undecided? Yes, th these people are people who need to be closely followed up. So we need to monitor them uh, properly to explain to them that this could be axial spa or not. So we need to uh, monitor you closely. Of course, uh, in the um, uh, if you have a high clinical suspicion, we repeat the MRI of the sacroiliac joint around one year later. Uh, nevertheless, we can also benefit from new biomarkers. And so maybe this is a good introduction to the second. Uh, it comes to the next, uh, which comes to the next study, which uh, is very interesting. This is... Uh... Abstract 1517, so uh, where you looked at the utility of NTCD um, uh, CD74, uh, uh, you looked at different uh, isotypes of the uh, immunoglobulin. So can you just give us a background? What made you choose this uh, CD74? Yes, so the idea was uh, like discussed maybe a few years ago. Uh, when we presented our first review that HLA-B27 was low in Middle Eastern countries and that we need a new bio biomarker to help us diagnose our patients and uh, reduce the diagnostic delay. 
So our German colleague in uh, Hanover and German, Professor Torsten Witte and uh, Professor Xenophon Baraliakos, were working on uh, this uh, the CD74 antibodies, and they uh, proposed that we test it in our population. Uh, the problem actually was less uh, of, uh, of, of a problem in, in Europe because HLA-B27 was a very good biomarker. However, in our countries, we needed uh, a different biomarker. So what we did, we did a first study that we published in uh, 2019. We compared people with confirmed axial spa to healthy blood donors, and we found a good association between anti-CD74 and, this, um, uh, uh, and axial spa. However, uh, around the same time, there were even other studies that confirmed this association and other studies like studies from China and a study from uh, Netherlands who found that there was no association. So we were started thinking, what was the problem? Why did we find an association? And uh, some of other teams found an association and other didn't. So, of course, one of the um, first ideas that come to mind is a genetic background. So the Chinese study we didn't find any association, whereas Middle Eastern studies like from Egypt and European study from Russia, from Western Europe found an association. So we thought maybe this could be genetic. And the second thing is that the comparator arm was also different. So the, the Dutch study compared axial spa to low back pain. This was a space cohort, this spondyloarthritis cohort, early cohort. So we, we thought that we should test our uh, these antibodies in the population that we intend to use it later on. So in population with low back pain, not in the population comparing to completely healthy blood donors. So the, the really uh, diagnostic utility of the test was, would be a patient with low back pain and uh, we are not sure if it's a spa or not. Like the 9% uh, that we were talking about, that we, uh, the diagnosis remains uh, uncertain. So we uh, redesigned the study and we wanted to include actually uh, all the countries that were uh, uh, included in the, in the previous one, so the seven countries. However, uh, there are very strict restrictions on uh, exporting uh, human data, so human samples. So from other countries, it was impossible to send the blood samples to Hanover. So uh, this is why we ended up having two countries, Iraq and Lebanon, to include the uh, patients in this study. So this, is, this was also a prospective multicenter study. We included patients who had uh, suspicious low back pain, and uh, we tested them for uh, the, the traditional tests like a clinical uh, CRP, MRI, sacroiliac joint, HLAB27. And also we tested them for the three types of anti-CD74, IgE, uh, IgA, IgG, and IgG4. And uh, the, the gold standard was the diagnosis of uh, the rheumatologist at the end of the day. And we tested the diagnostic properties. And we found, again, an association between uh, anti-CD74 uh, IgA and the diagnosis of axial spa. So around 45% had axial spa in that, uh, in that sample. So uh, it included the 116 uh, patients. So uh, this is quantitatively, so it was associated. The other isotypes, so IgG, IgG4, were all also higher in axial spa compared to low back pain and compared to healthy blood donors as well, but the difference did not reach statistical significance. Now, we use this quantitative data to calculate our local threshold of uh, positivity using the rock curve. 
And uh, using this uh, locally derived uh, cutoff point, we found that uh, axial sparse was associated with IgA and TCD74. So it's positive in 56% compared to 25% in low back pain. And so this association was still significant. And the likelihood ratio, so the sensitivity was 56%, specificity was 75%, and the likelihood ratio was 2.2. Now, um, the association with HLA-B27 was stronger. The likelihood ratio was uh, 36. So we looked at patients who were really our problem, so patients with negative HLA-B27. So we studied also, we did the same thing in this, uh, this subpopulation, and we find that the likelihood ratio, the positive likelihood ratio was uh, 2.7, which was still very good. So we think that based on this study, which needs really to be uh, also confirmed in, in other countries from the Middle East, that if you have a patient with uh, negative HLA-B27, the diagnosis is still uncertain. Uh, adding NTCD74 will help uh, confirm the, the, the diagnosis and oh, shorten the diagnostic um, delay. Excellent. I think uh, a likelihood ratio of 2.23 uh, with your IgA um, would be certainly be uh, in a, an avenue to pursue, especially if you already have a very low prevalence of HLA-B27 in the countries uh, where you work. Um, obviously, uh, one of the issues you, you raised was about the access to the test. Do you think this will become something that will be routinely available in time, uh, testing the CD74 where, where, where so you work? The, 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 the test is now commercially available. You ha we have it, so we can get the test. Uh, the problem is that you need also to validate the cutoff locally. Because uh, also, I didn't uh, talk about it, not to complicate things. We also took a, a sample of a healthy blood donor from Germany and our healthy blood donor to see the, the baseline uh, levels of NTCD74. And our baseline in healthy blood donor was, was lower. So the cutoff that you can use in Europe may not be the same cutoff that you can use in, uh, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Egypt, or, or other countries. So I think that this is now the major um, uh, obstacle for uh, using this uh, test uh, at large scale, because really the cutoff needs to be validated on on larger level in different populations. Uh, excellent. I mean, uh, you're doing validation and you're making it uh, um, suitable for your local population. So what's the future? I mean, it's seven point one years. I think uh, if I read on your on your study yeah. for AS, 5.9 in total for everybody, but 7.1 for the uh, the XPAR group. So going forward, what do you think will be the combination? Do you have a bit of master, a bit of B27, a bit of CD74? What what combination would you, you think you'll be using in terms of clinical and laboratory criteria to try to uh, reduce uh, your time to diagnose? Yes, I think that uh, the first, uh, the most uh, uh, useful uh, parameter uh, is still the uh, clinical parameter. So you have inflammatory back pain that is recurrent in all referral strategies, in all uh, in all all systems. That this is the, the main criteria, and I think this is this can be used in 
valuable campaigns, awareness campaigns, contact with our referral, referring physicians. So as I said in the beginning, the referral system, the healthcare system is different. So we need to really create awareness among these uh, specialists to see the patient as first line. So they can be aware that in case of inflammatory back pain, what is inflammatory back pain? Maybe ask a question or two, so more good response to NSAIDs, the family history or extra musculoskeletal manifestations. And it would be the simplest way to refer the patient. So if we want to add a biomarker, we need to do like some cost effectiveness studies. So, so far, for example, CD74, we, we should not be very, um, very high cost, but uh, we don't know yet. So what we did was, uh, was not a cost effectiveness study. But I think that first, uh, awareness on clinical parameters, especially inflammatory back pain. Second would be extramusculoskeletal manifestation. Available biomarkers already CRP, like 50% of uh, axial SPA group were CRP positive, whereas uh, less than 20 were CRP positive in the control group. Uh, HLAB27, if, uh, if positive, then it's, it's great. If it's negative, then you will need a second biomarker. And I think that at that time, the CD74 would be useful. Well, thank you very much uh, for a very comprehensive uh, study, um, both clinical and laboratory. And I think globally, we're all driving towards a common goal to reduce delays to diagnosis, to reduce uh, morbidity and suffering for our patients. And what is important is for that we adapt to our local uh, situation in terms of uh, population, understanding of our population, and also the resources that we have. So, uh, Nelly, thanks very much for your time. I hope you will enjoy the rest of ACR uh, 22. And uh, thank you for your time. So I'm Anthony Chan reporting for Room Now uh, here at ACR 22. Hello, everyone. My name is Michelle Petrie. I'm from Johns Hopkins. And today for Room Now, I want to discuss how much we need new treatments for SLE. In particular, we need them for the very common non-renal lupus manifestations. And I wanted to emphasize how much we need new treatments for joints, because in every single clinic, I'm giving triamcinolone injections for joint flares. I think many of you know that I don't ever increase oral prednisone because I'm too worried about long-term steroid side effects. But I do give triamcinolone 100 milligrams IM for non-renal flares. So I wanted to discuss this abstract, it's abstract 1117, to show the, the hope, but also the potential pitfalls as new medications are developed for lupus. And this abstract is about ducrovacetitinib. You know, I think we should limit everything to four syllables, which is an allosteric TIC2 inhibitor. This is not the first time you've heard about it. It was also presented at ULAR. So where are we now for skin and joints? For skin, of course, we're going to start out with hydroxychloroquine, and then we're going to add methotrexate, mycophenolate, or azathioprine. If it's discoid lupus, you know, our dermatology colleagues may consider drugs in the thalidomide family. And then when we turn to biologics, we have two choices, bulimumab or anafrolumab. For joints, again, we start out with hydroxychloroquine, then we add methotrexate or azathioprine. 
we try very hard not to give anti-TNF unless it's a rupus, a true overlap, because we're so concerned about anti-TNFs, not just causing lupus, but increasing lupus antibodies like anti-phospholipid and anti-DNA. And then for biologics, we have bulimimab, although many of us use other things off-label, don't we? So what might the TIC2 inhibitor add? Well, you know, many early studies, you know, think of them like phase one, some of them were investigator initiated, showed benefit of JAK inhibitors. So then what happened with baricitinib was very disappointing because in the phase two trial, it did show benefit for joints, but only one of the two phase threes had positive results, you know, it was for joints. But in particular, a TIC2 inhibitor might be safer than a JAK inhibitor because we don't like the JAK inhibitor boxed warnings in our lupus patients because lupus patients already have a propensity for those problems like thrombosis and malignancy. So I wanted to show you this summary of the key efficacy results, but then I'm going to hone down on some of the things I want you to see because they're super important as we compare and contrast lupus trials going forward. So this trial is quite complete in terms of its presenting all the important outcome measures. And you know, at a first look here, you're gonna say, oh, this is a nicely positive trial. But I, I want you to think more carefully about what the results actually might mean. So first of all, they do show the results for individual organs. And I think that's key. And I think we should require that of all lupus trials. But do you see the big surprise? What organ is this good for? It's pretty obvious it's skin, isn't it? Because that's what the classy result is all about. Look at that delta for classy. Like this is an oh my God moment in lupus. Now look at the active joint count. You can see, of course, there's a problem. The lower dose worked better. It isn't that it evened off, right? The higher doses worked less well. And in fact, that medium dose, you know, only has a 7% delta versus the standard of care. That's not very impressive, you know, even given the fact that many lupus trials are not that impressive. So uh, a kind of like a problem, right? This is not going to be your go-to joint drug if these kinds of results held up in phase three. Now, I'm very glad they put in LLDAS. You know that lupus low disease activity measure is my favorite outcome measure in the clinic because it requires that the disease activity be low and the prednisone be below 7.5. So you can see that about 36% of patients achieve this wonderful goal. But now again, remember how concerned I am by that drop-off that patients did much less well on the higher doses. So, you know, a concern. Now let's look at SRI. Now, why look at SRI and, you know, not look at BICLA? Well, of course, I don't mind if you look at both. But the advantage of the SRI is the only way to lose points on the SLE day is by that manifestation resolving. So this doesn't look at partial improvement. This looks at what I'm going to say is a very meaningful improvement. And you see that there is a very nice delta with a low dose. Now, the, the medium and, and, and the third dose are really the same, aren't they? Six BID and 12 once a day. So we're not surprised that those two 
give the same answer, but you see, of course, it's less. And if we take that 44.9 for the 12 once a day, you know, there's only a 10% delta versus the standard of care. And I think we're, we are looking for more than that in lupus trials. Now, one problem this has is that it appears to be a skin drug and skin only gets two points on the SLEDA, joints get four. So that hurt this in the SRI analysis. Remember, I still think it's very impressive for skin. Now let's think about adverse events, because remember that was one of the themes for today. The JAK inhibitors have adverse events that are seriously unwanted in lupus. But in the baricitinib phase two and phase threes, you know, there wasn't a signal for thrombosis and they did let antiphospholipid positive patients in. So at least that particular worry was never realized in the clinical trial setting. But now all you have to do is look at the last three on this, uh, uh, on this table. So you see there's no signal for malignancy, atherosclerotic cardiovascular events, or thrombosis. So that's all very good news because, you know, we need more skin drugs. This would be an easy thing to give, right? Because it's got an adverse event profile that I think you and your patients are going to be very willing to tolerate. So where have we come in this whirlwind tour of TIC1 versus JAK inhibitors? The TIC2 inhibitor is promising for skin. If this holds up in phase three, this would be a very welcome addition. Now, this is not the first RCT in lupus to fail to show a nice dose response, meaning that the higher doses work better, but you know, maybe theoretically higher doses would have more toxicity. What on earth does this mean? Well, I think it means that when you give a higher dose, other immune pathways kick in that then negate some of the benefit. And I think this should worry everybody because you got to be so sure that you pick the right dose because there is what I'm going to call a narrow therapeutic window before you start to lose the benefit. Now, phase two success does not guarantee phase three success in lupus. We've seen that so many times. Why? Well, I think part of the problem is when you get to phase three, the companies have to recruit many more sites. And some of those sites may not be facile with the physical exam that's necessary for lupus or for completing the instruments. I mean, come on, guys, it's a multi-organ disease. It's often hard for me to correctly uh, assess it when I'm in the clinic. So some of the problems that might occur in joints is, you know, I don't care about the total joint count. I only care about the joints that are typically involved in lupus. You know, when you look at the person's hand, you want to see the valleys between the second and third MCPs. We know in the ultrasound studies, those are the joints that are involved in lupus. I don't want to hear what's happening in the knees, for example. That's usually going to be something else like osteoarthritis or AVN or even fibromyalgia tender points. So I really care that we change our trial designs and I'm an advocate for an MRI rather than let the physician mess things up. Now, how could we have problems with skin? 
Well, if the lesion is old and scarred, like many discoid lesions are, it can be sometimes confuse. So I would like to have photographs adjudicated. But so far, I haven't been successful in changing the study designs of lupus clinical trials. But I just wanted you to understand the pitfalls and why even though this seems to be so exquisitely positive for skin, we still need to see the phase three results. I want to thank you all for listening. I want to remind you that Room Now is there at the ACR, always there for you. Room Now is where all the action is. Thank you.